Howdy and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne. A while ago I was working for a veterinarian and he was a very old school veterinarian. He hadn't really kept up on the continuing education of the day. He he was living in a, a very different world, I believe, than the current veterinarians that I was used to working with. And he was talking to a client one day um, out at the front desk and I happened to be there and the client was talking, they were telling some story. And the story was, the client was saying that he had a dog who was hit by a car. And the dog was hit by a car uh, quite a ways, I guess, from the house. And uh, he didn't discover the dog until the dog had dragged itself back to his house. And the guy, this is just some random dude, says, oh, you know, I couldn't have done that. Dogs must feel pain differently than human beings. And this veterinarian this theoretically educated human being said, oh yeah, dogs have a higher threshold for pain than people do. And in that sentence, I recognized a couple of things. The first is I recognized why he didn't give pain medications for surgery, uh, which should actually not be legal, but we'll move on from that. Why he thought the way he did. The problem with that statement, of course, is that it's absolutely untrue. And not only is it absolutely untrue, it has been scientifically known probably longer than this rather elderly gentleman has been alive. We've known for a very long time that all mammals have the same nerve structure, whether they be humans or dogs or hamsters or guinea pigs. And I can't speak of how far down the animal food chain or animal kingdoms it goes, but I certainly can speak for mammals in saying that we all carry the same nerve structures and we all carry the same central nervous system and we all, all of those hook up to the same processing centers in the brain. So when somebody says, oh, dogs must have a higher threshold for pain than human beings do, that's going to send up red flags for me because A, the science disputes that, common sense disputes that, and we freaking know better. But it's a great story. And the reason it's a great story is because we forget that that dog hit by the car had no other choice. There's no plan B for that dog. Any more than there's a plan B if you get hit by a car way out in the boonies, you're going to drag yourself home or die. There's not a lot of choice there. You're not stronger. You're not better. You don't have a higher threshold from pain than somebody else who gets rushed to the ER. You just have to do what you do to survive. And this idea that somehow animals are a different plane than human beings and that human beings stand alone, uh, both with our nervous systems and our brains and all of that, it, it's the problem with it is, of course, is that science day after day and week after week has been disproving this as an idea for a very long time. The problem is that it shouldn't have had to be disproven in the first place. Logically speaking, if I were to say compare a dog to a rabbit and ask you, well, okay, if dogs feel pain, do rabbits? Most people would be like, well, duh, those are very similar animals. You know, why, why wouldn't they? What if, if, if a rabbit feels certain emotions or a dog feels certain emotions, why wouldn't a rabbit feel certain emotions? And we would see rabbits and dogs as part of a, a mammalian continuum where it's very logical to believe that if a rabbit has it, a dog has it, if a dog has it, a dolphin has it. And yes, there are huge differences between some of these animals, very much so in brain structure and intellect. 
But the core, the main part of what we refer to as the lizard brain, the amygdala and all of that, those are all the same in, in all of these animals. And we would, we just like to put humans on this magic pedestal where we are, where we are alone and we are superior and we are better in every way. And then the job of science is to prove that that's not true, to like prove a negative, to prove that we're not right when we believe that. And, and of course, science has been plugging away at that, but it's been plugging away from the starting point of animals are completely different than humans, that humans stand alone. And so every little teeny step has been this chipping away of the stone of this orthodoxy that animals are somehow stand apart from human beings. And studies roll in and they roll in and they roll in and the medicine shows that we're very similar. There's a reason we can test all of our drugs on rats. There's a reason that we do heart transplants first on pigs before humans. There's a reason that we can look at rhesus monkeys for behavior in humans or rats for behavior in humans. Or that the person who created a, essentially the, the framework in, for applied behavior analysis that we use today to teach children and work with disabled adults is was a guy who worked with pigeons and rats because we're on a continuum and why this matters so obviously this doesn't matter that much i mean ask for make sure you get pain medications for your dog but um the reason this matters is because dog training also is a part of this picture and there's, there's a contingency of dog trainers out there who actually still adhere to this idea that dogs are somehow different. And I think it's really important that we understand where people make these, these judgment calls. And I'd, and I'd kind of want to know where our science lies because I don't really like to be floating out in the world where there's no science to back my play. I mean, I can believe lots of things, but I prefer to believe lots of things and have science somewhat on my side. Now, you'd be careful with that because, of course, you can pick science, and I'm putting that in air quotes, because some is good and some is bad, to defend a viewpoint. So, of course, anytime you have a viewpoint, always challenge yourself by reading studies about the other side, if there are any legitimate studies on the other side. So I, I had a case that was, that was really complicated. It was, a, it was a serious aggression case and it was, the dog just wasn't doing what I expected it to do with what I was, with the treatment protocols that I'm used to using. And of course this is always gonna happen, right? I mean, you can treat cancer a hundred times on a hundred different patients and some are not gonna be the same outcome. Psychiatrists and psychologists can treat a human being with the same quote unquote disease multiple times and with different outcomes. So there's certainly nothing abnormal about this, uh, but it was very frustrating for me because I was trying all these things and I felt like I was flailing around and I wasn't going in the direction I wanted to go with this particular dog. So. I have a network of other dog trainers that I reach out to when these circumstances arise. And the network of trainers that I reach out to train in a fairly similar manner to the way I train. And that's going to matter. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of walk you guys through a little bit of the dog training wars as they are currently framed here. Bear with me. So there are essentially considered to be two camps in the dog training world right now. And one camp is 
what we refer to as R plus trainers. And those are trainers who are by their own definition, only going to use rewards-based training to train. There's a level of militancy in that group where there are some folks who are like, if you ever use any of the other four quadrants, the other three quadrants being R negative, which is, so so R plus would be rewards. I'm handing you something, ask for behavior to be more likely to happen in the future. So you do something I like, I give you a piece of candy, you do it more often. Okay, so that's that's the easy thing. The, the R negative would be, I'm going to remove something that's gonna ha- that's gonna make a behavior more likely to happen in the future. And the example that's always used is is the beeping of a of a seatbelt chime. Okay, if if you if you get in your car and your seatbelt beeps and your seatbelt yeah your seatbelt beeps, you put your seatbelt you click it in and that goes away and that's considered by many to be R negative. I'm not going to get into the details because there's a big debate about it. Who gives a shit? But just understand that I'm going to try to create a behavior and make more likely by taking things away. Um, R negative is honestly how we train horses. By we apply pressure with a leg or our hands and the horse does a behavior and then that pressure is removed. So that's another way to look at, at R, uh, R negative. So then there's P plus, which is adding a punishment. That's being pulled over by a cop. He's giving something to that you saw that sucks usually it's a ticket and p negative which is taking something away from you that's putting your kid in time out taking away the xbox okay so there are these four quadrants and there's a lot of fuzziness we're not gonna get into that but the r plus community which self-defines itself is going to try to stay as much as they physically can or possibly can in the quadrant of R plus, maybe leaking into R negative a little bit. So they're always gonna use rewards. They're not gonna use punishment. That's the thing they have to understand. They're never gonna reach for a prong collar, a choke chain, an e-collar. They are very unlikely to go, uh-uh, bad dog. They're very unlikely to use a lot of pressure in their training. They're not gonna use slip leads and things like that. Then on the other side of the spectrum is the whole rest of the dog training world, okay? That is everybody from me, who I use 90% easily, maybe more of R+, um, where I'm um, I'm giving lots of treats, I'm building behaviors, I might do a little bit of R negative, but I still have a little P plus and P negative in my training regimen. You know, they're, they're on the table. I'm not gonna remove things from, from my training protocols. But I don't use, you know, the tools. I don't use prong collars, e-collars, choke chains, things like that. Then you get from me all the way over to the people who slap an e-collar on every single dog they see and just just light them up and shut them down. And that's a huge spectrum. And I think we in the dog training community need to look at that spectrum a little differently. So the two very far edges of those spectrum really, really kind of throw emotion out of the dog training picture to some extent. By that I mean the people on the far, far one direction with the R plus trainers, those folks, they're going to be in a very, what we refer to as Skinnerism mode, which means BF Skinner was the guy who worked with the pigeons and the rats. And he actually believed that behavior could, that any behavior could be trained at any time if you just applied enough rewards and punishments in the right places. Like he believed that you could turn any child 
into a lawyer or a football player, okay? And he believed that emotions were internal and eternal things couldn't be proven and until they could be seen externally, they really didn't exist. So when you're in that Skinnerism sort of a place, you are only going to operate out of what we refer to as operant conditioning and classical conditioning, okay? Operant is Skinner. That is, you do a behavior, I mark yes, I pay you, the behavior is more likely to occur in the future. I ignore things like emotion because emotion doesn't matter unless it's perceived outside. So it doesn't matter what your emotions are, I'm going to change the behavior as I see it. Then there's classical conditioning, which is Pavlov. Everybody from high school biology remembers the story of Pavlov. He rang a bell, the dog salivated. Pavlovian conditioning is actually not a conscious decision. You are not training a behavior. It is a behind the scenes physiologic change. Those dogs weren't thinking of food and salivating. They weren't thinking, I'm gonna make saliva. They were responding to the bell physiologically. And again, none of this really is that important for the lay dog person to understand. It's super cool for me, but may not be super cool for you. But let me just explain that for the R plus folks, they are working for many of them, not all. They are working from a purely applied behavior analysis structure. And in that structure, any behavior can be changed if you apply the right levers. And in this case, levers would be punishment or R plus would be rewards only because punishment's off the table. On the far other side of the spectrum, way over in the crazy town of let's just put an e-collar and shut every dog down. A lot of those folks, the emotions don't matter, only the behaviors matter for a different reason. They don't care that the dog is barking and acting aggressive because it's frightened. All they care about is the behavior at the end. And what they have found is that if they put an e-collar on or if they put a prong collar on the dog and they make the dog's behavior extremely uncomfortable for the, beha- for the dog to repeat the behavior, the dog will stop repeating the behavior. And they do not care if the dog is frightened. And they don't care that by adding a punisher to a frightened dog, they're actually making the dog even more legitimately frightened and now putting the dog in a situation where pain and fear are the only way it can move through life in a situation that's been inflicted on it by this training method. Obviously I have some issues ethically with this training method. In the middle, which is where I think most of the dog trainers in the world are, um, there's a lot of variation. But I am gonna say that I think there is there's a, there is a divide, and I think that divide is in a different place than maybe we think it is. So I was faced with a case that was very complicated, and it wasn't working the way I wanted it to. And so what I did is I reached out to a fellow professional dog trainer. Now, I have a group of dog trainers that they reach out to me when they're struggling with very difficult cases. I reach out to them when, they're, when I'm struggling with very difficult cases. And we support each other, and we walk each other through solutions. And the, I have a couple of people and the, the issue I was running into is both of the people that I usually bounce ideas off of were MIA. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't find them. And I really, I really uh, was up against the wall on trying to deal with this dog's behavior. And so I, I reached out to a third professional and this is a person obviously I know and I respect and 
but I don't know how this person trains. I mean, I have an, I thought I had an idea how this person trains. I knew that this person trained differently than I did. I know this person was much more willing to put a prong collar on her, a dog than I am. But, you know, I'm not going to necessarily make a huge judgment call on that. I know this person probably has a history of e-collars. Not my jam. Again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a huge emotional investment one way or the other on that. But I just needed to bounce some ideas off this person. So I called this person up and this person was very, very kind with their reply, which is why I'm being very specific not to give any indications of who this person is. Because they were very kind and they and they gave me a rundown of how they would solve this problem. What was fascinating to me was not the direction they went in solving the problem because I, I kind of knew the direction they would go because I kind of understood their training problem, their training philosophy a, a little bit. It wasn't that. It wasn't using a prong collar versus using that, you know, which is behavior adjustment training, which is what most folks who train like me used for aggressive dogs. It was that we honestly, when I listened to this person speak, we weren't just coming at this animal from different ideas on how to train this animal, where this person thought that punishment was more allowable or that punishment was more justified or punishment gets faster results, which I think punishment often does get faster results. Where I found it fascinating having this conversation, we is not the, the go-to tools necessarily for fixing the problem as I defined it. It was that we weren't speaking about the same species. The species that I was referring to was a species that's commonly known to react aggressively out of a, out of a place of fear. When we see dogs at the end of a leash barking and snapping and snarling and acting like asshats, the vast majority of time, not all the time, but the vast majority of time, that behavior is what we refer to as distance building behavior. And it is to drive away the person or dog that they see as a, as a threat to their health, welfare, and safety. And so if I'm coming at this picture of a barking, snapping, snarling dog from the point of view of this is a fearful animal, I'm going to, as a trainer, my goal, and that is the goal of the behavior adjustment training, which is the, like I said, the method that most trainers like me use is to teach the dog that that person or dog is, does not actually pose a threat. And, and we do this, I'm going to walk you a little bit through this and, and just bear with me because I think it's relevant. The, the example I always give is imagine there's a spider in an elevator and you're frightened of spiders and you are in the elevator with a spider and I offer you food. You're going to say I'm an idiot because we're all gonna die because it's a freaking spider in the elevator. But if I can get you out into a football field and I can point to a little tiny aquarium way over on the opponent's end zone and I can say, there's a spider there. And you can say, okay, I can deal with that spider there. And there I give you cheesecake. And over the next few days or weeks or months or whatever it takes, I incrementally get you closer and closer and closer and closer to that spider by showing you over and over and over and over and over again that not only do I have control of the spider, right? It's in an aquarium, but it's not bad. It can't hurt you. It's, it's under control. That's exactly how kind of behavior adjustment training works to some extent. I haven't spent a lot of money becoming an official BAT person, but 
that's the gist as I understand it, and I think that's the gist as most dog trainers understand it. And the important piece of that pie, the pertinent piece of that puzzle, is that we have to keep the dog below the point where they're screaming and yelling and trying to flee. Because if they're screaming and yelling and trying to flee, all the cake in the world's not going to cut it, right? It's too, you're too close. It's to always keep the dog under what we refer to as threshold. Threshold being the moment when the barking and the screaming and the carrying on. And actually the threshold could be backed up a little bit more to the dog has a worried face. It, it has all these body language changes that indicate fear, worry, stress, etc. Uh, so anyway, this is a training method I was using. This is a training method that frequently works. And for whatever reason with this particular dog, it wasn't working the way I expected it to. It's not always a fast system. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. And at the very end of it, I will sometimes put a little punisher over the top of it because I think sometimes the reactivity is a little bit of a rehearsed behavior, a, a habitual behavior, where the example I tend to give is uh, little kids who scream when they see spiders. That's a behavior that is not really predicated on fear as much usually as it is on that behavior having been accidentally reinforced. And we know that because you can be frightened and not scream. So screaming would be the behavior we don't want to see. So we can either look at it as let's get the kid used to spiders and then at the very end teach the kid, okay, now that you're, now that you're not scared of spiders, here's the deal. Don't scream. That's off the table. Do not act this way. You are welcome to be frightened, but you are not welcome to act this way. The other option is to smack the kid for screaming. I don't think that helps them in dealing with a spider. Maybe I'm wrong. I, 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 you know, the thing about dog training is there are people out there who smack the dog essentially and tell them to stop screaming at the spider and the dog carries on with their life and does just fine. But I think for the vast majority of dogs that is doing them a disservice. So the reason emotion comes into this conversation is all of this is predicated on the understanding that I'm understanding and reading correctly the emotional state of the dog in this situation that the emotional state of the dog in this situation is in fact fear. And the person I was speaking to was coming at this from the angle of, well, dogs don't feel fear the way we do. And dogs don't look at the world through the same lens that we do. They are built to be punished, essentially. That punishing a dog is different than say punishing a child. And the example given in this case was that, well, we see bitches punishing puppies. And, and I was very respectful because again, I had called this person and I, you know, I kind of said, okay, you know, I hear what you're saying and I'm going to mull it over and, and knowing full well that there's no way in hell I'm, I'm going to follow through with this person's advice because not only was this person's advice coming from a different training modality, which I think I can respect and I can understand. I come from the horse world where I didn't give a shit if the horse was biting me because it was frightened or striking at me because it was frightened or striking at me because it was aggressive. It couldn't repeat that behavior. And so I had no problem in the horse world wheeling around and whacking that horse for throwing a leg at me because the other option is me getting killed. It's not an option. Now, I have no problem coming at dogs from that same 
mental space as a dog trainer. I don't, that's not my personal way of looking at it, but I've been there. I've done it with horses. You know, I don't think all these horses sat around speaking to their shrinks and and spending the rest of their lives terrified of whatever it was. I think a lot of horses were very resilient and tolerated that level of correction for a behavior and just moved on with their lives. And they lived, you know, they lived another 20 years perfectly content to do horsey things. But I don't want to start there, certainly. And I and I do think that a, ho- a dog is a complicated animal that has a longer history of living with human beings, that has evolved more specialized understanding of us as human beings than, say, horses. Horses have been domesticated, to the best of my knowledge, for about 5,000 years. And dogs, the research is constantly fluctuating, but we're looking at probably anywhere from 20 to 30,000 years for dogs. That's a huge difference. And again, dogs lived in our homes. Horses never lived in our homes. Uh, Dogs are an omnivore, so they have a very similar wired brain to what our brains are wired like. Uh, Horses are are, uh, herbivores and therefore have a very, very dissimilar wiring to the brain. So by that I'm saying I can see that as a solution. I just don't want to go there. So I have no problem with this trainer saying this is a solution that this trainer would have used under the circumstances. Because again, I, I can see that with horses. Problem I had was that we weren't even speaking about the same species. This trainer completely dismissed that this dog could be in fear. It didn't matter. It didn't matter this dog was in fear. And when I brought up, well, what happens if I accidentally create correlation between the punishment and the appearance of a strange person, it was, well, the dog's not feeling fear in this situation. We're misreading it. We're misallocating understanding of this animal. And it's, this isn't what we're, what we're seeing. And that's, I think that's what we have to look at dog trainers today as the true dichotomy is where does your dog trainer see your dog's emotional place. Does your dog trainer see your dog as a series of levers to be pushed and instinct doesn't matter? Because I'll tell you what, if you've got a border collie who's lunging and screaming at cars and you look at that dog and you think that this is an issue of fear that they're frightened of cars, you are going to desensitize until the cows come home and it will never ever change that behavior. Because that's not why the genetics of a border collie will have it barking and lunging at cars most of the time. Most of the time, that is a misallocation of a behavior that would be used for herding sheep in a bored dog with not enough outlet for their natural instinctive behaviors. And so I struggle with the idea that dogs are simply a bunch of levers any more than I would struggle with the human be- the idea that a human being is a bunch of levers. We also have, I believe, intrinsic likes and dislikes that I don't always think stem directly from punishments and rewards, even as children, even if you go all the way back to the very beginning. And I think we are all a little different and that we all are driven by different needs and desires and wants that aren't all predicated on a learned history of punishments and rewards. And I also believe that dogs aren't some other that we can punish with wild abandon and pretend 
that they feel punishment differently, that they somehow process punishment differently, that the emotions that they feel are somehow less or different than our own. And, and so I think it is important that we discuss emotion when we talk about dogs and dog training. Part of the reason I think we have to talk about emotion about dogs and dog training is I think so many people get it wrong. I mean, that's the other problem. And that's always been the fear when we talk about emotion with animals is humans tend to over apply emotion. You know, my cat is peeing in my, my boyfriend's shoes because she hates my boyfriend. Well, cats don't use urine as revenge and she's peeing in your husband's shoes probably because she has a urinary tract infection. It's rarely behavioral in cats to pee random places. 90% of the time, it is a urinary tract infection. Cats are showing up at shelters all the time. The number one reason for cats showing up at shelters is litter box etiquette. And the number one solution to solving these cats' problem is to apply a antibiotic. And most of those cats could have stayed in their home had the owners bothered to take them to a vet. Or had the owners bothered to change the uh, texture and type of kitty litter? Or had the owners made sure the kitty litter was clean? Or had the owners ensured that there was one box per cat plus one? Uh, those simple solutions would keep you know, hundreds of thousands of cats out of the shelter. But instead, we place an emotional marker on these animals and now they're at fault. So when I talk emotions in dogs, um, I, my biggest place that I try to avoid it is if I put the animal in a position of being wrong, being filled with vengeance, being filled with Napoleonic plans to overtake the planet. Um, I think when we put those kind of emotions on dogs, I do think we are stretching. So we know from research that occurred, I think back in the 60s by by Jack Pengsep, that that animals have emotions. And, and when I say this, there are studies, he's written literal books. He created a whole neuroscience called effective neuroscience based around his understanding of emotions and animals and all other mammals. Arguments about emotions in humans and animals are ongoing. Scientists have all etched out their little corner of the world when it comes to this. And I have not read all of it because I have better things to do. But what he wrote is often quoted by dog trainers and it does seem to be pretty, it seems to be pretty solid science. And for right now, I'm willing to, I'm willing to roll with it until I see evidence to the contrary. And what he discovered is that dogs do have, and, and animals, all mammals, have what we refer to as the seven blue ribbon emotions. And I'm not going to get into those seven blue ribbon emotions, but just understand that those emotions encompass most of the emotions that human beings and animals feel. And we know that they, uh, every day we have more research indicating that animals have more emotion. It's one of those things where you and I, if we were talking, we'd say, oh, our dog is jealous, right? And maybe it's true and maybe it's not true, but we always attribute our dogs the ability to feel jealousy or envy. And we see it in our dogs and we label it as such. And that's probably correct. They, they've done research with monkeys. And when a monkey doing a task for which it was trained saw another monkey doing a task, the same task, and the other monkey was paid a grape and this monkey was paid a cucumber, 
this monkey threw the cucumber at the researcher. And that was a huge piece of information saying this monkey wasn't going to do the same work for less money. He's like, I'm not. I value grapes higher than cucumbers. Why is my friend getting a cucumber or a grape when I'm getting a cucumber? And he chucked it back at the researcher to show his disdain for this payment. And evolutionarily speaking, we have to look at jealousy or envy as being a logical thing that would keep animals alive. If if I'm a pack of wolves and my sister-in-law, Mrs. Pack of Wolves, is over there chomping on a huge, chunky, juicy bone, and I've got a crappy little shard of bone, I'm going to look at hers and recognize that hers is better than mine. And evolution is going to pay me for that if I go over there and snatch it from her because I will survive because I just ate more nutrition. So a lot of times I think if we look at things from a basic standpoint of does this make sense evolutionarily speaking, will this help this animal survive as a species? We will see that yes, these emotions make sense for animals and dogs and people. It makes sense that we would all have the same nerve endings because nerves serve a very specific purpose and that purpose is to keep us alive. A a person who has the inability to feel dies. They, They make bad choices and they die. And same thing with an animal. And, but we are still recovering from 400 year old ideas that animals somehow have fewer nerve endings or fewer a different understanding of pain. But there's no reason to have ever come from that position to start from. It's a, it's a ludicrous assumption. And I think if we look at the science more reasonably and say, well, do we see anything different in the nerve endings of animal, of dogs? And the answer is no. Nerve endings are nerve endings are nerve endings. They all look exactly the same. Do we see anything in the neurotransmission of dogs versus humans or rats versus humans or mice versus humans? And the answer again is no. The transmission is exactly the same. When you go to biology class, you don't learn how nerves work and how they go to the uh, whatever, the core of the brain. I don't know if it's the amygdala or where that goes. When the nerves are transmitted through the central nervous system to the brain, we aren't taught to look at the human and then look at the dog or the cat or the squirrel differently. We are taught that they're all the same because they're all the same. So then to come back and say, okay, but we don't think they should be the same because we are somehow special, kind of is a height of arrogance and it's illogical. It doesn't stand the test of logic. So the reason this matters is because I think if we are going to talk about training this animal, it behooves us to at least have a fundamental understanding of what this animal is. And that does mean paying attention to the studies. It does, it does mean making sure that we don't let our ideas of what these animals should be run ahead of the studies as much as, as possible. They're always going to, to some extent, but we know that behavior adjustment training works. We've seen it. It works on thousands of dogs every single year. And it works because it's coming from the from the understanding that the dog is behaving in this manner because they're frightened. And as it gets used to the thing and learns that we can control the thing's approach or that the thing is under control or that the thing won't attack and eat them, that the dog learns that it's safe and goes on with their life. Behavior adjustment training would not work if the dog wasn't feeling a fundamental emotional charge. If the behavior was happening in a vacuum where the dog wasn't feeling fear first and the behavior was just a simply a reinforced behavior, then yeah, you pop, you pop the dog with a punisher and the behavior is going to go away. 
because it was reinforced. But then I guess the question is, why was where did the behavior come from in the first place? Behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't just randomly try behaviors out. The little kid who sees a spider and screams is looking for something with a scream. That scream is designed to do something. And usually the something is to telegraph to other human beings, usually adults in the area, that there is something there to be frightened of. And that stems from an emotion. It doesn't come out of a rehearsed history of punishment and reward. So anyway, I know this was a little deep, but I just felt it was really important because I think there's a fundamental dichotomy in dog training right now where there are folks out there who truly believe that we are training a different species than other folks. And I think then the question has to be when you're looking for a dog trainer, you're talking to somebody about dog training is not necessarily how they train, but what they believe. Do they believe that that dog feels the same exact thing physically, that they feel pain the same way we do? And if they don't, how does that how do they use that to justify their behavior, right? If I think an animal feels less pain than I do, well, then I'm justified in in acting in a manner that I would never act towards a human being. And if I believe that an animal cannot make choices out of fear, then I'm completely justified in using a punisher and just ignoring the communication tools the dog is trying to utilize to tell me it's frightened and just tell the dog to shut the hell up. I'm done with this behavior. I need you to shut it down. And again, I think ethically, that's a very dubious place to start. So anyway, I know this was a little deep. I hope you guys kind of got it. I got into a little bit of science, but I think it's important. We cannot divorce dog training from science because we have been studying neurochemistry and genetics and physiology and dog training and applied behavior analysis and Skinner and Pat. We've been studying all of these for over a hundred years easily for a reason. And that's to better understand both ourselves and dogs. And if we don't look at the science, if we just completely ignore it, if we pretend that somehow we are a creature apart, then we are doing a disservice to our dogs and we are doing a disservice to honoring what it is that they are and what they bring to the table. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a fantastic day and I look forward to chatting with you all again. Uh, happy training.